Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast, where we have conversations with guests about their life, loss, grief, and of course, grief dreams, which can be dreams of the deceased. If you want to know more about the topic and your hosts, please visit our website at griefdreams.ca. To support our podcast, please go ahead and rate it. For additional ways to support us, please refer to our show notes. Before we move on with the show, we'd like to give a territory acknowledgement. Long before Canada was formed, the Stalo people were the original land stewards, and they have lived here since time immemorial. They continue to live in the unceded Stalo territory, known to settlers as the Fraser Valley and Lower Fraser Canyon of British Columbia. We recognize and honor the contribution that Indigenous people have made and continue to make to our community and the topic of great dreams. Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast. Thank you again for tuning in. Today, your host for the show will be Jade and myself, Joshua. And the guest for the show is Dr. Kathy Balicki, who is a professor emerita of psychology at Brock University. She trained originally as a psychologist. And so that's the kind of psychologist who specializes in the assessment and treatment of different psychological problems. But soon she found out that the teaching and conducting research really brought her the most joy. So much of her career has been studying dreams, looking at such questions as differences in dream recall, the causes and treatment of nightmares, the relation of personality to dreaming, and at the end of her research career, my favorite, the nature of dreams of the deceased. At various times, she has also studied forgiveness and the impact of childhood trauma and abuse on one's emotional well-being and physical health as an adult. And at present, she is just completing writing her, her memoir about her experiences in the memory wars of the 1990s. And that was a period of time of intense conflict over what to make of recovered memories of childhood sexual abuse. And additionally, Kathy is a friend and a mentor, and she was the one that actually allowed this research, Just in Dreams and Bereavement, to actually come to a point where it's actually now being normalized. And so she was my PhD supervisor. And that's when we did a lot of great work in really normalizing and getting people to talk about the subject in a new way. And so I'm just really privileged that she's able to be here today. It's so weird not having, you know, edits to do when I talk to you and we're actually having a like a nice conversation and it's going to be recorded. So I'm just happy. And I thank you so much, Kathy, for being here today. Oh, it's so good to be here because you're right. We did so many work-related conversations and we never found the time to just talk about these these dreams in a, in this kind of way. So real pleasure for me to be here. And my first encounter with you actually wasn't as a supervisor. It was actually as a student. And I was in a point in my life where I was a math major and I took psychology as an elective. And it was you and there's John, Dr. John Mitterer we're teaching the course and I just fell in love. Something happened in that moment. <laughs> I don't know what it was, but I, I switched my focus and I actually transitioned to major in psychology. And then, you know, as you know, soon enough, my dad died in my fourth year and I was actually teaching assistant for you for the Psych 1F90 course. And I always look back in my bereavement story on how important that was to get you brought a gift and you also did a handwritten card um, and you got people from the psych 90 department to, to sign it and it meant a lot to me even though we never really talked about it it did and still does mean a lot to me and then to be able to do then the research with you afterwards to continue on sort of meaning from my own loss like i 
I don't know where it'd be without that in many ways. This podcast wouldn't be around. Like, there's going to be a lot of things that would be different in my life. And I really am enjoying who I've become and where I am moving forward. So I just want to thank you just for being also a companion on my bereavement journey. Even though we didn't really talk about the death so much, that your actions itself actually helped me in many ways. Well, it was wonderful too, because the uh, when we first would have had that connection, I had just had a one-off study. A gentleman, Norman Coco, had contacted me. He'd heard me on radio talking about dreams. And he'd sent me this manuscript he'd written uh, listing all the dreams he'd had of his his deceased wife. And he and I had started a conversation. And we ended up doing a little study about those dreams. And there it sat. I think I told you about it way back then in those undergraduate days. And then I did no more work on that. And off you went and you got your master's degree. And then uh, you came back. And it was so great because I had been studying you know, forgiveness and trauma, but always missing the study of dreams. That was my first love. And you came back and really wanted to study dreams of the briefed. And it was fantastic because it allowed me to bring all those threads of my career together. And uh, so it's funny how life weaves these things together, isn't it? How people sort of dip in and out. And then you look back and go, wow, was that ever a lovely little tapestry that got woven there? And it meant I could sort of end my career doing back to the dreams that uh, I wanted to study and yet weaving in those themes of trauma and the impact on dreams. It was good fun. I think it's a good time to really ask you, dreams was a big passion throughout. What really got you interested in that field? Because I'm guessing it wasn't a big field at that time. No, it certainly wasn't. And and I'm even remembering how when you first came to do your doctoral degree, I sat you down and said, this will be a career killer for you if you just study dreams. Because to this day, I mean, here dreams are what? Like at least 15% of our life right? And sleep is a third of our life. And yet you open up the average psychology textbook and it's a couple of pages. Uh, So, and I think because we tend to focus on what happens when we're awake, but if you want to understand the mind, you want to look at the mind all 24 hours. So I came, I was raised in a remarkable family. Uh, We didn't interpret dreams, but we talked about dreams in the morning over breakfast, the way we would talk about our day in the evening at night. So, you know, you came back around the supper table. How was your day? Blah, 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 blah. In the morning over the breakfast day. Oh, how was your night? What did you dream about? What did you think about? And we just told, there was no interpretation. We just told those dreams. And as a result, what we now have known for many decades, that when you pay attention to dreams like that, you start to remember them. You also start to have remarkable dreams. So I had a full range of dream experience. And I would remember eight hours worth. If I slept for eight hours, I remembered eight hours of dreaming and thinking. And then I had a roommate in university in my first, uh, no, she would have been my third year of university. And she and I were like bestest friends. And she'd never remembered a dream in her life. And she said to me, Well, is that like daydreaming? <laughs> Are you from another planet? <laughs> I didn't even know how to answer that question. And I thought, I need to understand how it is. I remember all these dreams and she remembers nothing. And I was lucky in that third year course, I had a professor, it was a personality course. And you had the option, instead of doing a paper, you could do a little study. So I decided to do a study on why I remember dreams and she couldn't. And I had an idea about what might be going on there. I um, did a small study, it proved correct, and that kind of launched me, the professor, because I was a very quiet child. 
person in my undergrad years. So suddenly the professor noticed me. He talked about me in the department. People started hiring me as a researcher. It sort of, it sort of lifted me up, launched me, and also got me in the sort of center of people noticing me, which brought me out of my shell. And uh, so, so dream research became many things for me. It was just ever so intellectually exciting. And it was also personally, it sort of brought, turned my life around and sort of launched me both professionally, but also personally in terms of getting confidence and finding that I had a niche here. And then of course, once you start studying dreams, oh my goodness, the dream research community is such a fascinating community. I mean, what other conference can you go to where you have hard-nosed researchers, you know, reporting on science of sleep, sitting next to therapists who are talking about dream interpretation, next to shamans who are beating drums, uh, next to artists who are flitting through. You'll be sitting in a in a lecture hall and someone will come flitting through in an exotic costume interpreting a dream. And, and we all sort of got along at times we kind of come to blows but it was it was it's a group the international association for the study of dreams has carried on and on and on and it's unique and remarkable and absolutely delightful so the study of dreams just covered everything for me from personal to personality to career to just social it just hit all the right notes and the years i wasn't studying it i missed it dearly and I remember the one thing when we were first talking and about nightmares and you sort of mentioned how when you first started off, nightmares were seen as very rare amongst yeah. people. Yeah. And I was shocked to hear that. But then it, it got me thinking about just how we need research to understand what is actually real <laughs> versus what people say is real. And if you could talk a little bit about that. Yes, no kidding. And actually, as I sort of reflect on my career, I've come to realize I seem to specialize in studying things that other people don't think exist, uh, including, you know, they think that in North America, there's tendency to sort of dismiss dreams as being irrelevant. And in fact, if you read a bunch of dream reports from people, they're pretty boring from North American dreamers. Because if you neglect your dreams, then it's like you're putting your brain on park. And so those dreams are pretty dull dreams. That was one of the things that was so exciting about, I found about dreams of bereavement is suddenly these are very special dreams and absolutely nightmares. Um, that's uh, was when I, I, I chuckled when you said that because they not only thought nightmares were rare, they thought that adults who had nightmares were psychotic or if they weren't psychotic yet, they were going to be psychotic soon. And I thought, Oh dear. <laughs> but I also, I, mean, it was, I had nightmares, but actually that didn't concern me for a moment because I had already known I'd collected quite by chance. I'd asked people when we were doing large studies, sort of pre screening people for smaller studies in the department. I just threw in a question about once one year about how many nightmares do you have and, and found that most people had had a nightmare in the prior year. And many people had had uh, lots of nightmares. And I thought, well, there's not that many psychotic people in this department. And so, so that then launched me into, okay, what's going on? Uh, this was even more nightmares than I had anticipated. It was more than I was having. And the more I studied it, realized that this was a common experience. And that's what you found with bereavement dreams, that they were common experience. Yeah. And I was uh, just thinking while you were talking, oh, that's really interesting, the 
the people are psychotic. And I know now we have, you know, different understand and more robust understanding of what a nightmare is. But how I'm just curious how at that time, like what constitutes a nightmare? Because I would imagine that how that's measured is pretty diverse, depending on a number of factors. So can you just speak on that for a moment? Absolutely. Because that was another thing we assumed nightmares were terror dreams. Okay. Okay. On my, uh, and one of the things we did differentiate them from was what are called night terrors, which are experiences that happen usually early in the night in a stage of sleep when our brain is almost comatose and they're dramatic because when you, when people have those, you wake up screaming, you wake up, uh, heart rate goes through the roof. If you're a, a person who witnesses this in somebody else, it's terrifying to witness. Uh, it's it's as if they're possessed. Uh, but the person usually doesn't remember any content. Now, it's possible they were having some kind of dream and it's just their brain was in a comatose state so they couldn't bring it back. That too, by the way, they thought only children had those. And when I started asking, I found out that adults have those too. But parents drag their kids to the physician when they're having night terrors and adults just have them. So again, we assume though that nightmares were terrifying dreams, not night not those experiences that happened early at night, but were dreams, but were terrifying. And again, it just occurred to me to ask people, what is a nightmare to you? And I just both fell off a chair because less than half said that their nightmares involved terror. So some said their nightmares were grief dreams. Some said their nightmares or so dreams filled with grief. It's sometimes for a character that they never had that didn't exist in their waking life, but they woke up mourning. And sometimes that stayed with them for days, the sense of mourning and loss for a person that wasn't in the in the waking world. For some, it was a sadness. For some, it was anger, rage dreams. And then a few said that it was confusion dreams. And I remember thinking, oh, you don't know what a nightmare is. And uh, I'm going to make sure I stay away from my pet topic of memory wars because we're here to talk about dreams. But certainly when I got into the memory wars, my primary emotion was confusion. And I thought, I owe those people a an apology because profound confusion is nightmarish. So I then started another fight after having this long fight to convince the world that nightmares were common in adults and that you weren't didn't wasn't a sign of psychosis. In fact, that people who had nightmares were as well adjusted generally as people who didn't. My next challenge was to say, and by the way, nightmares are not anxiety dreams necessarily, that they are, uh, they can run and that who am I to tell you what a nightmare is. You're telling me this is a nightmare. Sometimes you're coming into therapy for this dream that is a rage dream or is a morning dream. Who am I to say, oh, I'm sorry, that's not a, a nightmare. So I just, yeah, that field was one of the field of dreams generally was one of just I said I became aware of my career, became a career of studying things that everyone else said wasn't worthy of studying or didn't exist. You know, some of the work, Joshua, that we did was with pets and with uh, people who mourning their um, their lost babies. Remember, I had a colleague once who had miscarried. Actually, she uh, the the baby the fetus died and had to be removed. You know, she just came in one day and we didn't know each other very well, but she just was a really bad day for her. The medical people had handled her horribly in the interview. And she came into my office and burst into tears. And so we talked a bit. And I just saw the books. This was new territory for me. I said, did your baby have a name? Yes, the baby did. The baby was 10 or 12 weeks old. She'd already given that child a name and was a child to her. So again, here was a kind of um, forbidden topic. What, what we 
learned in the literature is called disenfranchised grief, grief that the world doesn't recognize as grief. So you're on your own at a time when you especially want to um, be with other people. And and in research that we did within the team, there was a team of us doing research at the time. We did a study of people's dreams of these lost babies. And many for many of them, that's it was a baby. That was the language they used. Not all, but many of them. And it was so interesting to see because some of these dreams were dreams about the pregnancy failing, but some of these dreams were about these children older as toddlers, even right up to teenagers. It was like they were celebrating a life or or, or sampling a life that they missed out on. And it sort of showed us that the loss, it wasn't just a, a loss of tissue, if you were. It was a, a loss of um, of a future. So it was these dreams were a little unique from the bereavement dreams because as I'm as you know, often those dreams of the deceased are positive dreams, which is again was a unique finding that that ran against the wisdom of the time because dreams linked to terrible events are supposed to be bad. That's what post-traumatic dreams are by definition. And here we're discovering all these dreams and even the upsetting ones, people went, but you know, it had these lovely moments and they were glad they'd had it. And so that was again sort of fighting against the current to get people to stop coming with preconceptions to these and actually listening to each other about what these dreams were like. And how validating all of that is because yeah, the disenfranchised grief experience. And I know a lot of people who listen to this podcast struggle with that pet loss and feeling unheard, or they've miscarried and gone through that journey or had a stillbirth experience. Like it's just, it's far reaching, but I think that those these conversations are really helpful to those people because you know it's a way that they can feel heard and seen and validated and all that yeah it's very important and so it's great i'm so happy you're you're here reiterating this knowledge cuz i i just know that people need to hear that and how wonderful that you've been able to add some really meaningful pieces to that conversation so that's great i really encourage people to first of all i just keep a stack of bereavement cards. <laughs> I'm of an age where you need to send them out even more frequently. Yes. But I have the I send them out as soon as I hear of a lost pet, out it goes. And with uh I I, I proceed more carefully with lost you know uh, babies, miscarried, stillbirth, but certainly tr- there, I especially try to have a conversation. And one of the things I just as I stumbled it on, I often will ask, did you give this child a name. And if they did, because so many times bereaved people say, no one, I never get to hear the name of like even, you know, their their uh, spouse that has died. People will talk around it and they won't use the name. And people love to hear that name. So I, I've learned to ask early on, did, did this baby have a name? Uh, did you name your baby? And then I use that name. And you can just see how it's like, oh, that someone now acknowledges that this was a being in the eyes of the parent. Then a few, there was a future there, and there was a name, and and uh, it makes such a such a difference. It's true. Yeah, and I think that I know just in grief communities that you know that we frequent in those conversations. I think avoiding the name is like people. I think the intention is like they don't want to, tr- you know, they don't want to trigger people, or so mm-hmm. personalizing it in that way, it almost like when you're asking about it or on anniversary, you know, death anniversaries and just the importance of doing that and how far that can go. So I too would encourage people to go ahead and put, you know, put a name there, or if you like knew the person, you know, refer to them 
How often do you think about whoever or, you know, how are you feeling about the loss of whoever? And specify that piece. And yeah, I think it feels like our support system is more kind of dialed in when they're when they're using that as well. And so we feel, I don't know, less alone in a way if they're using a name. Yeah. yeah. Oh, how we're so nervous about emotion, eh? How yeah. <laughs> and this this misconception people have that, oh my goodness, if you tr- if I trigger you and you become emotional, I've somehow made things worse for you. Right. No, this is the, I think one of the uh, best grievers I've ever met, who certainly has taught me for the future how to grieve. She just never, she just let it go all the time. You may remember Joshua Jean, and Jean is quite comfortable with her story. So, but she, yeah, she just, whenever it hit, she was perfectly comfortable with weeping wherever she was. And I've never seen someone sort of move and grow and develop through through what was a profound loss for her. And yeah, this this fear that we have that somehow, well, if you start crying, you'll never stop. You'll stop. The person will stop. It's okay. And the and that that uh, is is healing that that these reactions, this is what uh, moves us forward. And it doesn't take it away. It I Actually, I just use language of healing. I try to avoid language of healing because it has images of somehow the thing goes away as if it was never there. And that isn't a right image. It even frightens people who've had losses. Oh my goodness. Like, am I like betraying this person if I heal? Well, let's not think about healing. You're not going to go away, but you're going to move forward and and that person will, and their life and the loss will leave a mark with you that is part of who you are are going forward, but that, um, so it's more about moving forward and continuing to grow rather than healing as if somehow this wound can be erased, which no one really wants it to be anyway, because somehow, you know, they, they, they want the acute pain to go away, but they don't want to forget and they don't want to have that sense of somehow as if the person never was. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious now because of doing the research, have you switched the way you talk to the bereaved and said your friends in the sense of asking about their dreams now about the deceased, which maybe you may not have prior? Oh, Joshua, I'm so embarrassed. No. (laughs) But you know, it's interesting because I'm kind of, when I think about why is that, I'm kind of known as the dream person, but my friends know the dreams have been both a love and a study. and, And so they tend to be more likely to talk about it with me anyway, but no, actually, I don't think to. Uh, <laughs> isn't that odd? <laughs> and it's interesting because my I was thinking of, about my own dreams of the deceased before I, because uh, here we are, we're going to be talking about this topic generally. And I wonder if one of the reasons why I don't think to raise it very often is I haven't had much of my own. And the ones I've had are of two varieties. I, I've only actually had one dream of a human loss bereavement that I'd love to share in a minute because it's it's kind of unique and I think it's worth um it's that old thing of I tend to go after the stuff that gets overlooked and this type of dream gets overlooked. So I, I will come back to it. But the mostly when I have dreams of the deceased, it's of my dead animals. And they are those, but those dreams are not encounter dreams. I remember when I did that first little study of Norman Gulko and his uh at that point 11-year diary of dreams of his uh wife who had died. 
I noticed that the dream seemed to be sortable into dreams of an encounter where it was as if he was encountering her now in this moment versus the majority of the dreams where it seemed like she was just like any other element of the dream. She was a symbol. It wasn't really an encounter with the flow of his marriage. It was flow now was acting in the dream the way any object or person in the dream is a symbol for an idea. In dreams, we don't use words. We use images and sequences of action to convey ideas and to do our thinking. We're thinking through images. We're thinking through story rather than through words. And all of my dreams of the of deceased cats, I always, when I wake up in the morning, it's always a treat because I sort of feel like I've had a visit of sorts with them. But in the dream, these are just dreams as symbols. I've had a whole sequence recently where I suddenly in the dream realized, oh, I haven't fed, fill in the blank, Sam, Ashley, Nikki, or Pony in, in years. <laughs> are they, where are they? I haven't changed their litter. It's like I sort of vaguely remember. I thought they died, but no, no, they're here somewhere. And I find them and they're always looking a little worse for wear, a little dusty, but, but they're still okay. And so I get them clean litter and get them clean food. And I have no doubt that these are dreams about I'm neglecting something in my life. And uh, uh, and I haven't quite yet sorted out what that is. And the problem with dreams is dreams lack volume control. So it could be something huge and important, or it could be some tri- trivial thing that that day before I neglected and, and that somehow the cats stand in as a good. What about your own bereavement about the pet loss? Well, you see that that would be... Um, I wonder if because I I did it very thoroughly, so that I mean those we don't have children, so the cats ended up standing in for us as being um, we were very very close to. So the bereavement uh, around that I did very well at the time. So I would even have hallucinations. I'd hear them meow while awake, and I remember it was because we always took we never let the vets send them off to the crematorium. They came home with us and always two weeks, we had been with them when they were euthanized. So, and it happened so quickly. And every time I bring them home and for 24 hours, we're not burying that cat because I'm not convinced the cat is dead. For once I kept hearing the cat meow and I'd go run, he's alive, he's alive. No, that's definitely a dead cat. (laughs) So there was that real working through. So they don't have the sense of bereavement uh, as a, it's a good thought, but it, it just as those dreams are, they don't have that kind of sense. They more have a sense of standing in for something else. It's so interesting. Yes, I um, two things. One, the phantom meow that you hear. That's that's that. I think that's that happens a lot. I've had that in my own bereavement journey. And I, I know that this people report this a lot, but and sometimes it's a phantom meow or it's the person call your name or smelling the person. I would have that with my my godmother. She would bake. I could smell her baking like at obscure times. Yeah. And then you think, oh, is there something? Is the oven on in the kitchen? Or she made the best like cinnamon buns and, and biscuit like scones and everything. So I could smell her her baking and like early in my briefment journey. So it's just interesting side note how those things kind of manifest and people can feel like oh my gosh i'm going crazy like i'm hearing them call my name or or whatever so you know that's a piece to work through but something else you said that really um stuck out to me was dreams don't have volume control and so i'm curious about how that might pertain to bereavement dream you know grief dreams dreams of the deceased like what can you speak a little bit on on that like what that means and if that transfers over to bereavement dreams and what that what that might look like 
Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because there is sort of new territory because as Joshua is the first to say, and you are too, Jade, there's not a lot of research in this area. So it would be an interesting question about whether... So if I look at trauma dreams, for example, particularly people with sort of childhood trauma issues who've done some work and now can recognize when dreams are picking up on those childhood issues. Uh, sometimes they'll have like a very vivid dream. And I've had folks come in and, um, you know, uh, I'm sort of remembering an interaction with a student who came in and she was, she said, I can't believe it. I had this horrible nightmare again. It's the old nightmare back. I thought I'd work that through. Now, first of all, again, she was falling prone to that notion of healing, but the but the uh, but she was right it, and i pointed out to her there had been some event the day before and she was studying childhood abuse so she's getting re-triggered all the time and i said to her you have worked it through those specific issues but i, I you know i had known what had happened the day before i said i think that just triggered the memory and it came back in the dream as memories are want to. Similarly, I, you know, when I was a kid and I was having rough times, I used to chew my nails right down to the bleeding stumpy part. And that I worked through those issues. But if I'm tired or stressed, I'm actually looking at my thumb. I've been doing a pile of work I hate doing today. And yep, I can see a little nip I've made on this here. <laughs> Does that mean that I haven't worked through? Of course I have. It's just old habits get trigger. So it's hard to know a really dramatic high volume dream may reflect some may reflect something big or it may reflect something small. So similarly I would wonder about and it's something that could be studied whether uh you know you know, you just asked Joshua about grief dreams. So I am remembering one dream with a cat, uh, War Pony, where when I had started writing his story, and then I switched to write this book on the memory wars. And as a, after, after I made that switch, I dreamt that I was walking past him, and he was a fierce creature, terrified us at times. And sure enough, he had that thunderous look on his face that, oh, no. And sure enough, in the dream, he bit my ankle, and I could feel those teeth sinking into my ankle. Uh, <laughs> when I, so, uh, and there I would wonder, there I would wonder if there was sort of, because uh, he was big in our lives. And and the loss of that cat was, again, loss of more than a cat, even loss of more than a companion, because that was a cat that had taught us so much about life and faith and resilience after trauma. And so, you know, that dream might have picked up a bit of unresolved grief. And certainly, you know, both my husband and I, there's times when we sort of come across a photo of him where it still catches our breath. So it's a big issue. But actually, that was a small thing in the dream. Yeah, he bit me. Uh, it was enough of a hurt of my ankle that I woke up, but it, it was a, kind of a quiet sort of like, oh, there he goes again. He's going to be just busy. Uh, and yet I think it was a bigger dream than the volume of the dream would suggest. But maybe, um, and now it is a, may, maybe territory because I haven't done this study or I haven't even talked to people at length about this, that sometimes... Um, a dream that is just a, a wash in, in emotion might be dealing with a smaller issue. It's hard to say. Like when I think of the big dreams that we've heard of bereavement, they have a big feel to them, don't they? Like they, unlike nightmares where at times I go, well, I don't know. I know this is a loud dream that screamed at you, but I'm not sure it's a big issue. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Big bereavement dreams do have a different feel to them. I think that it depends too on like where, like I just know from my own personal experience, like where I am in my waking life. Cause I've had the same dreams at different points in my life. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, when you're, when I'm listening to you talk, it's like, oh, 
one will come off as really in, or impact me in a, in a big way, even though, and then, you know, two years later or four years later, I might have the same or a similar dream. And I'm just like, oh, that was, that was like nothing. Right. So I think there is like lots of variables to consider, maybe all of, you know, which we don't yes. understand. And I just think, you know, I wanted to touch on that volume control piece because exactly like you're saying, like it might be people who are grieving and having these big theatric kind of dreams and they think, oh, you know, they might wake up and say, I've made zero progress. And so I think that touching on that is important. And it's like, no, maybe you had some other struggle and your ability to correlate those things. You might not have a Kathy Balicki beside you to say, hey, you know, remember that thing that happened yesterday or somebody that can, you know, that can connect those dots for you. So I don't want people to have those dreams in later parts of their of their grief journey and feel like, oh, I'm moving backwards or something. So that's why I think it's important to or, or even early in their grief, uh, they shouldn't be yeah. from those dreams necessarily that, oh, I'm not doing well here. See, what's delightful about dreams? One of the, there's so many things about dreams that are delightful. Uh, one of the things that's delightful about them is that they they cut loose from the constraints of reality. That's why they ha- don't have volume control. And that's why we're able to do such wonderful creative thinking and dreams because we are cut loose. We allow ourselves to just let go of things like time and proportion and and uh, well-trod ways of thinking. And we allow ourselves to think more creatively. But then that puts us at risk for nightmares. And and when we wake up, we we have to, to sometimes put some of those dreams in proportion. So this might be a good time to tell you this one dream, because it's one that I continue to come back to and think about, my one lone dream of, of a deceased person. Now, the, though there may have been two. So the, it was preceded by, it was a dream about my grandmother. But a few years before she died, my great-grandmother, who was a larger-than-life person, um, ferocious, whenever anybody dies in our collective family, inevitably, we end up talking about great-grandma <laughs> because she just loomed so large. She smoked, uh, chain smoked. She was lived right to the last days in her own little apartment. She was crusty. She kept the apartment at like 90 degrees and she had this humongous, vicious cat that would attack you. And if you try to do anything to stop that cat's attack, she'd scream at you, don't touch that cat. So she was just... Uh, so one night in uh, when I was an uh, undergraduate and I was in residence, I had my own single room, about two in the morning or so, I woke up and the room was stifling hot and filled with cigarette smoke. And in the darkness, I, and oddly enough, I wasn't scared, thinking there was something on fire. I was just puzzled. And then the thought came to me, grandma's died. And the moment I had that thought, the air cleared, the temperature went back to normal, and I fell asleep. And a few hours later, my mother called with six or seven she had a bad habit in those days of calling around six and seven. I kept telling her, mom, I'm a student. I'm up studying late. I'm never up before eight or nine. Stop this. And I got to the point of being kind of rude and I just hang up on her. So she calls somewhere around six or seven, tells me grandma's died. I was exhausted because they had woken up in the middle of the night. And so I said to her, I know I got to get sleep. Talk to you later. And of course she was left. What do you mean you knew? <laughs> so, so that was the that was my first experience of somebody close to me dying. And I assume from that that thereafter, whenever anybody died, I'd know about it. Because I I wasn't of all the grandchildren, I was probably the least close to my great grandmother because we traveled so much. So I thought, okay, this seems to be some kind of ability. Well, that has never happened since. But a few years later, my grandmother dies. I don't have any kind of message come to me. But then I thought, well, maybe tonight I'll have a dream. Well, I did. And what a dream. 
I'm at the funeral, her funeral, and half the, uh, it was sort of the funeral, which in the dream happened in the funeral home. So there's people mulling around. Half the people were living, half the people were dead. So half the guests were dead. They looked just like living people, but somehow we all knew who was alive and who was dead. And we're all mingling and chatting and and getting honoring the memory of, of my grandmother who's died. Then the time came to sit down for the service. And I sat down, I was in the front row and we're sort of settling. And I feel a hand on my arm. I look over and it's my grandmother and she's in agony. She's in agony. And she's looking at me with horror in her face and in agony. I wake up. And now I just go to pieces because of that dream I'd had with my, or that experience I had with with the smoke. And the, was that a dream? Was that a, who knows, whatever that was. And so I'm assuming something awful is happening right now to my dead grandmother. And for the, the, the real funeral happened a day later, I'm trying to ask people if they had any, any sense of how grandma's doing. And uh, without sort of telling them what my dream was, I told my husband, I was in pieces day after day. I was weeping. I was beside myself. I was furious uh, uh, with God. I was sort of a pre-Christian at that point. I was attending church, but I was outside looking in. But the con- I liked this concept of a God, all powerful, all knowing, all loving. And I, I was just furious. How could God allow this? I assumed the dream was true. And about three or four days later, I was going to uh, class. Uh, I was in graduate school now. And I remember the moment I got out of the car, I parked the car, it was across the parking lot, it was across the street from the university. And just as like, it was a busy street, you always had to stop and navigate um, uh, several lanes of traffic to get across because none of us would walk down to the lights, of course. And, and the thought came to me, something is alive. Are there several thousand years of experience with God, which has had people, including people who've been through horror shows, conclude that God is powerful and loving and good and kind? Or either that's a lie or the dream is a lie. And I thought, well, if I have to vote between several thousand years of human experience or my single dream, I'm going with the human experience. The dream's a lie. And as soon as I said that to myself, it was kind of like when that smoke left and heat left my residence room, boom, the, the angst was gone, the pain was gone, the, um, the, that uh, fury was gone. And I sensed just, it, you know, it wasn't a voice. It wasn't, as you said, said Jade, we can have these very, um, we can see people, we can hear people. It wasn't like that, but it was just like a whisper of joy from my grandmother of, I'm fine. So, you know, those kinds of dreams, we, I don't think we've seen anything quite like that in our research, Joshua, that I remember, maybe you've heard them, something like that from other people. But, you know, we've, uh, you know, we have at times talked about how, you know, in scripture, there's a lot of positive things said about dreams. But again, sometimes people overlook that scripture also warns that dreams can deceive. So when we're talking about don't read too much into emotion control, emotion, uh, the, the volume control on emotion Maybe don't read too much into the content. If it's out of character with the person, there's many things that could be going on in that. That particular dream continues to be a mystery to me because I remembered a lot of dreams in my life. And so I recognize it as being quite unique in several features. But I have long since learned that, um, you know, if I have a, a, a dream that someone I know and care about acts in a horrible way, I don't wake up the next day and look at them askance. I, mean, I will give some thought to, hmm, am I missing something I should have noticed in them? But, or is it that they're standing in for a kind of paradox or something? So we 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 just want to handle dreams with some, um, there's great wisdom to be found in dreams, 
but they're not like books where you can just simply read it out. You need to handle them with a light touch. And if it's not fitting and not making sense, you'll have more dreams, you'll have more thoughts. Don't let any one experience like that determine how you think or feel about something that's important to you. Yes, absolutely. I resonate with that. And Josh, you just for the record, you are very good at pouring discernment and wisdom on you could we because we talk about our dreams a lot obviously and same mm-hmm. thing i'm happy to have somebody to say like does this fit what else is going on don't throw the baby out with the bath water you know there's is, it doesn't always mean what it means or you know that that's actually happening so d- d- discernment is important in that space for sure so Absolutely. good point good point yes yeah, the interpretation of the dream. There's the dream itself, as sort of you sort of talk about it, but then there's the interpretation. And that's where a lot of people, I've seen all sorts of interpretations that can be very helpful to people in their grieving process. And maybe it was a negative dream, but the way they sort of look at it can be helpful. Um, other times, with what happened with you, Kathy, that it becomes challenging for them in their bereavement process, and it's actually hindering them. Mm -hmm. Um, as they sort of move forward. And you see that a lot, especially with people who view them as a haunting in some way, or it's like the actual sense of what's going on with the deceased soul in some way. I think that's the issue with the discernment and not a lot of research being on the topic. There is this sort of idea that all dreams of the deceased are visitation types for many spiritual people, and they classify them as that. And then, so it's like, what do you do with the negative dreams? Because in our research, there's around 40% of people had these negative dreams of the deceased. So what do you do with that? And a lot of people haven't really really discussed that. So it's really about using that discernment on maybe what's going on there. And it's like, sometimes we just don't know and how it relates to our waking life. And we can think about it, talk about it, but sometimes we just don't really know. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. As we sort of move forward and see, does it get triggered again? Does it happen again? And we can sort of see how it goes. I was just talking to this uh, youth actually, and she was saying she had a lot of these negative dreams uh, after her mother died and continues to. Mm-hmm. And then, so I asked her, well, it's actually interesting having so many dreams. I go, have you seen a pattern on like when they happen in your life? Because usually like, they'll, as in our research, they'll happen at the beginning of the loss and maybe they, the frequency dies down a little bit or it changes something more positive. And she's like, you know what? Usually when I have a decision to make, they come about. I said, huh. I go, did your, did your mom help you with decision making by any chance? And she's like, yes. She, I would always rely on her. So her grief was being triggered in one way in the sense that she didn't have that support when she had the decision. And so it was really talking about that conflict that was going on inside that she didn't really, I think, have someone to be able to lean on for support to be able to make those decisions. And it's interesting how, you know, you look at the grieving process and it's it impacts every aspect of her lives. Like for her, it was every decision that she had to make that she was unsure of was bringing up the loss in her life that she didn't have anymore. So I think it's very interesting. And like, even knowing the time frame is what triggers it. I love playing around with all of that sort of stuff because it is a mystery. A lot of these dreams are a mystery and different cultures have different interpretations when it comes to that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny because when I've talked to people who have dreams, this is a different type of dream, dreams of the future. And then they have a negative dreams, like they're going to die or somebody close to them is going to die. And then it starts, their life starts wrapping around this dream. But I've learned the best way to sort of tackle that is say to them, so what is the dream telling you that you don't already know? Because I'll tell you something, you're going to die. Those people you love, they're going to die too. So what is this dream telling you that you don't already know? Now, if it's telling you something like you've been leaving your house unlocked and it's saying you should lock your door, then you know what? Why don't you start locking your door? I then encourage them. I say, maybe this dream is trying to get your attention about something else. 
And that it, if you just interpret this dream or work with this dream, because you don't just have to interpret dreams, work with this dream, there's lots of things you can do with dreams, as if it was any other dream, go ahead and do that. And, you know, once you've taken any reasonable precautions, let go of this supposed, yeah, and now just maybe it's using that as a device to get your attention, you're using that as a device to get your attention and go ahead and, and work with this dream. And people have had great breakthroughs when they just get out of that track. This dream means this. Well, I think one of the issues with our culture is we don't talk about dreams. And so when people do have a dream that they feel is meaningful in some way, they'll go on the internet or look up a dream dictionary. And do you feel that is a good approach? <laughs> <laughs> Dream dictionaries tell you what the author's dreams mean. And the reason why I hate them is because if to the extent that dreams are amazing, it's the one thing we do ourselves. You know, every other aspect of my waking life from how I dress to it's always been dictated to or shaped by people around me and dreams too are shaped by our lives. But it is the thing that is most clearly done by ourselves, our way. And once you start using those dream diaries, what happens, dream dictionaries, you start actually, your dreams do start to match that book. So, oh, great. You're giving up yourself and your dream style to adopt someone else's dream style. Write your own dream dictionary. <laughs> Don't use that. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I always say to people, any book that tells you, gives you techniques for working with your dreams or playing with your dreams, go for it. Any book that tells you what your dream means, just put it back on the shelf. Don't waste your money or your time reading that because it's not even just a waste of time. You're actually warping your own experience. You're selling out your dreams to someone else's language. Now, the one exception I'd make is within cultures where there is a cultural wisdom that has accumulated over centuries. So there are cultural types of dreams, but they usually don't apply to daily dreams, even in those cultures. They're for special dream experiences. So yeah, there I'd say the culture calls it, you know, that's a, has its own important place and wisdom. But for day-to-day -day dreaming, please don't, don't buy a dictionary or look at them. You hear, you heard it here, folks. It's, yeah, I just don't, I always tell people that too. They're like, well, I looked it up in a dictionary. And I'm like, no, because there's so many variations of everything you just said is, is obviously what we uh, reiterate. And so, yeah, we always discourage. I mean, people, uh, some people believe that that's a valuable resource. And so, yeah, what's car for Jade is not car for Joshua or, or whatever, right? So, and it's, and it's interesting. I've had that in my own personal experience. Now I know what this means or that means. I know what it means for me. And so, yeah, collating your own uh, highly personal uh, a dream dictionary is, is the path forward. But those general resources to help you explore strategies for exploring better or in a more comprehensive way are great tools for sure. Yeah. Yep, indeed. And so one of our last questions that we'd like to ask our guests is if you could have a dream tonight of someone who has died, I'm guessing you had more people than the one and the pets that have died. So feel free to include anyone. What dream would you like to have? And what would that look like? You know, one of my very favorite, lots of people live for the weekend. I live for my morning coffee. I will usually starting about to now start looking forward to tomorrow morning's coffee. And I would love, I had a waking image a few years back where just spontaneously I, I was on the couch and suddenly for just a moment, it was this sort of vivid imagining of all the cats that were in my life were heaped around me. 
So I would love a dream where all the cats, all the beloved friends, human friends, I do have human friends too, you know, not just cats, <laughs> and family, including the people that I fell out with in their life, but I'm absolutely confident we're going to work that out in the long run. I would love to just sort of be sitting quietly with them all, having my morning coffee and enjoying their comfort. That would be the perfect dream for me. And it's so not going to happen. Dreams just aren't like that. <laughs> <laughs> it, so, it sounds blissful, though. I Doesn't love it? that. <laughs> yes, I that that sounds amazing. You're talking. I'm like, oh, what a cool experience that would be. And uh, with the cats and everything, too. That's great. I love animals, too. So to have that experience and with your coffee, it's heaven. Yeah. Heaven. It's- Yep. And that couch would be out in a meadow, by the way. So it'd be outside with the sun and the birds and all my friends and family would just be sitting, enjoying it and having our morning coffee. That would be perfect. I love that. And you never know, tonight could be the night and you get that dream. Yeah. (laughs) If you do, let me know. (laughs) Okay. So thank you again, Kathy, so much for coming on. It's just a pleasure. And I said, like, you've just been such a big part of just my growth and my my grief journey and allowing, you know, this topic to be normalized. As you said, like, you've been, for whatever reason, you've always been a part of different moments when research helped reorganize the culture's language and understanding on certain topics. And we even talk about childhood trauma, which is another thing that you sort of found that was seen to be rare, but now we know, and you found in your research, it was actually very common and more common than what you were told being in your clinical program. And so like, it's just amazing how you were always in a part of this. And it's so nice that you're a part of this. And for me, it's just like, you sort of see that things intertwine and it just feels like it's just the right time for this knowledge to be out. So I just want to thank you for just being you and being a part of the research rather than going to clinical psychology, because you made such a difference just in my life and it's just the research, but also in these dreams. I know the bereaved really thank you for that because I constantly get emails and conversations about how meaningful the work is. So I know you may not get as much as I do because I have the, the platform, but I just want to sort of share, showcase how much what you've done has actually helped many people and more people as we sort of move forward in time. That's wonderful to hear. And you guys are just doing fantastic work. So like, congratulations on that and keep doing it. Keep doing it.